This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. And that is like especially me this week. I need all the health care this week. I have so <laughs> many issues right now. But Today, we're going to be talking about ambulances and the ambulance industry, or sometimes more broadly speaking, the emergency medical services. So we're going to be using this acronym EMS a lot in this episode. That means emergency medical services. And why are we talking about this? And why is this such an important topic? We know it's important because Michael Bay recently released an action movie called, wait for it, Ambulance. <laughs> this is the director who brings you about like 90% of the big budget Hollywood films where car chases happen and lots of shit gets blown up. And sometimes there's robots from outer space. But, you know, like a lot of our healthcare system, the ambulance industry has become increasingly privatized, taken over by for-profit equity firms. And this, you know, has dramatic impact on the patients who need EMS services, often when they're kind of at their most vulnerable. And it also has a big impact on the EMS providers who work in the industry are being, you know, increasingly squeezed by their employers. So, Jillian, we have guests today. We do have guests today, and we're pretty excited about these guests. So here are our two guests for today. We've got Jay Wesley West Boyd, MD, PhD, Professor of Psychiatry and Medical Ethics at Baylor College of Medicine. And he's also a lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Wes has written about and taught extensively in the humanities, medical ethics, human rights, and psychiatry. Great to have you, Wes. Thank you so much for joining us. Delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And then even more exciting, if you don't mind me saying so, Wes, we have Aditya Shakar, who studies the epidemiology of various emergency medical conditions, including cardiac arrest and traumatic injury, all the good stuff. And he has contributed to numerous publications and leading medical journals, and his work has been featured by several medical society societies. And most important for this conversation, he has field experience as an EMS provider, and he teaches EMS in the United States and internationally. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's, it's always exciting to uh, sh shine some light on, uh, on a not often discussed topic in healthcare, but really happy to be here. Awesome. So as Ben said, this was kind of prompted by this very important film, Ambulance. Our two guests today, they ended up publishing an article in Slate about the movie Ambulance and ambulances. That's like ambulance. It's titled Ambulance Raises an Important Point About Ambulances. <laughs> Subhead, the box office flop is basically a commercial for, for, for Falk, a for-profit ambulance company with slow response times. Great article. Definitely recommend that you check it out. You too kind of own a Michael Bay film at the low, low cost of whatever Falk paid to be <laughs> sponsored throughout the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. So I want to get to our guests in a second, but I actually went to see the movie Ambulance this weekend. I'm and still I shocked. Yeah, I know. 
I, I have a feeling that if I don't talk about it on the podcast, I'm not going to be able to write off the tickets as a business expense. <laughs> Is it okay? Oh, assume. very important. Go ahead. <laughs> I just want to correct some misinformation. So Ben, you would say that this is an action movie. It's actually a bit of a departure from Michael Bay because it's a documentary about the failures of the healthcare system. I, I really don't think it's a documentary, Julia. I'm almost positive it's not a documentary. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. I do know that it was, you know, at least in part fantasy because there's an LA cop in it who frames a white man for a crime when he could have framed a black man. So we know that's not true fiction world. But the reason that I described it as a documentary is because it actually does deal with the failure of our healthcare system in a very real way. So it's, it's about this guy who's Yaya Abdul-Mateen, who is actually a really excellent actor, and I'm very sorry he had to be in this movie. But he plays a guy whose wife has to have some kind of experimental surgery. We're introduced to him in the movie because he's having a conversation with the insurance company, and the private insurer is refusing to cover this experimental treatment. And that is, of course, what motivates him to go and rob a bank with his brother, Jake Gyllenhaal, and they go together to rob this bank, they end up having to abduct an EMT and they end up using a, an ambulance as a getaway vehicle. And eventually they all end up saving each other's lives. There are like seven different points at the, this movie where people are like, he saved your life. Talking about all different people. Anyway, yes, it was a big commercial. And now you don't have to watch the movie because <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of feel like without our broken healthcare system, half of the Hollywood plots would fall apart. They all do. <laughs> I, I gotta, I have to add, even if they did save each other's life, it bears noting the insurance company refused to pay for service. That's what, in my experience, insurance companies do. Right, right. Yeah, like I said, it felt very realistic, kind of, you know, documentary style, including the part where the EMT actually has to provide emergency surgery, emergency surgery in the ambulance as they're being chased by the cops. Which is I that part of your training, Aditya? In ambulance surgery? Yeah, so in ambulance surgery is not super common. Some people, some places do what's called a cricothyrotomy, where basically they create a surgical airway at kind of the neck. If the if the face, if you can't throw an airway in through the face, they'll actually make a surgical incision. But I think that's probably as as surgical as we get. There's this old trope of like EMTs doing surgery in film and TV, and that's all, as the kids were saying, cap. Surgery in a move, moving vehicle sounds like a terrible idea to me. I don't know. In this particular case, there's kind of an amusing part where she has to do the surgery, right? And they call in the doctors to advise her, and they're all on the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's also accurate, correct, Wes? You're yeah. coming to us from the, the, the golf course yourself, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, either, either that or just, yeah. <laughs> I'm either on a golf course right now or I'm on the sixth floor of a VA hospital. About that. <laughs> either or. Either Close or. enough. <laughs> so, um, so, yes. So she ends up being able to remove a bullet from a man's spleen while in an ambulance going 60 miles an hour, being chased by the police with a gun to her head. Yeah, that leads us to your experience. Tell us about how realistic that is. <laughs> yeah, so I've got some cool stories. Nothing, nothing sort of that cool, but... Yeah, so when it comes to, to EMS, I like to describe it as sort of 95% boredom, maybe 5% sheer terror. So a lot of times when you sort of clock into a shift, you'll you'll find yourself waiting there and then call out will come out and they'll sort of tell you what the call out is. And 
you get there and you sort of have to piece together information to sort of arrive at a working diagnosis. You have a degree of interventions that you can administer to your patients. But then really sort of the most definitive treatment that, that we as EMS providers can do is, is transporting that patient to sort of definitive care and the most appropriate uh, hospital for that patient. And so that's sort of what, uh, what EMS is at the 10,000 foot level. But when you sort of break it down, every call becomes unique. Every call becomes interesting. And there's calls that are incredibly memorable because you get to help people and you get to really make a difference in people's lives. And then there are other calls that are memorable for, for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Because they're hilarious, a little bit hilarious. Hilarious, heart-wrenching, just the whole spectrum. Yeah, right. yeah no, I, I can see how probably most of your job isn't hilarious. No, a lot of it, a lot of it is hilarious. And a lot of it is kind of like a sad, we're in it together kind of camaraderie with you and your your partners and your crew. So when, you know, the third 3 a.m. toe pain of the week comes out, that's really something where we can all laugh and have a, have a bonding mm-hmm. time. <laughs> Quick, quick follow-up on that. What's the worst part of being an EMS provider? Worst part about being an EMS provider? I think it's probably, so when you look at storytelling, there's this idea of sort of narrative pacing. And when a story has sort of inconsistent pacing, it feels disjointed and a little jarring. I think EMS probably more so than any other profession has just disjointed pacing. This idea that you can get thrown from a really low acuity, helping somebody who just maybe needs a ride to the hospital or somebody to talk to, to somebody who's really hanging at the brink of a bad outcome and you're sort of salvaging that. So I think it's really sort of this weird narrative pacing and I really love it too, but I know a lot of people find it a little disconcerting and it takes them getting used to it. Yeah. And Wes, I was going to ask you, cause I mean, what Adit is saying is, is kind of one of the most satisfying things about working as an EMS provider. From the patient perspective, it's, it's some of our most vulnerable moments when we need emergency medical services. I mean, both vulnerable to bad health outcomes, but also being taken advantage of by the healthcare industry. What has, as a psychiatrist and a provider, what has your experience with the ambulance industry been, or uh, not EMS providers, but with the the industry above them? Prior to meeting Aditya and, and learning about EMS services from the inside, my main engagement with EMS services was working in an outpatient psychiatric clinic that was part of Cambridge Health Alliance. And the outpatient clinic was roughly a mile and a half from the main facility where there was an emergency room. And if in the outpatient clinic where I worked, one of my patients was imminently at risk of self-harm, in other words, they were acutely suicidal, the protocol was that we would call ambulance services and have them transported safely, hopefully, to the, the main facility. Right. Which is just down the street, right? I mean, Yeah. I mean, it literally was just down the street. And you know, after I'd been there for several years, I had more than one patient in that situation begging me not to call the ambulance, promising me that they would get themselves safely to the emergency room on their own. They would take the shuttle that was free that, you know, came to our facility, went to the main hospital, because what had happened when they had had that ambulance service called was that inevitably they would get a bill at some point afterwards, generally for over $2,000. And the first time I heard this, my jaw dropped. The second time I was like, okay, this is, and so at that point, I literally did everything I could to not call the ambulance service out of respect for my patients and fear for their their bank accounts. I mean, it, it got so bad. In one instance, I actually drove a patient myself to the emergency room, which did not please my clinic chief in the least. I understand why she wasn't happy, but nonetheless, that's what I did. No. Yeah. Not- 
that's the trade-off that no patient should have to make, you know, like, <laughs> or no provider should have to make either. I mean, well, it, it, it put me in a horrible position because the only people I would send to the emergency room were those at absolute acute risk. And yet in those clinically scary situations, I'm also making, you know, choices based on financial considerations, bad choices. Briefly, with an anecdote, there's a really sad caught on, you know, bystander cell phone video of a young woman who I, if I'm sort of remembering correctly, she was trapped between the train and the platform at a subway kind of metro station. And she was clearly needed emergency medical help and was begging passersby not to call 911. Because I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And this is a lot of people's experiences with, with the ambulance, with ambulances and EM, EMS services is just this fear of ending up with a, a surprise bill. And J Jillian, we emailed our list asking mm. people for their experiences yeah. with ambulances, and we were not prepared for the flood of stories we got. You've compiled some of these, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of these were, thank you, by the way, to all of our listeners who submitted their stories. Some of them were actually very personal and we appreciate when you share with us. Yeah, so I would say that these uh, fell into a couple of different categories, right? There were a lot of people who were surprised by their bill. There were a lot of people, I should say, who were really, really grateful for the EMS services that they received. But then there were some people who had some complaints. But let me read you this one story that I think is really, it touches on a bunch of different things that a lot of the stories kind of mentioned. So this is from Melissa. So Melissa tells us, I was temporarily living in Phoenix with my mom so that I could take care of her after she had heart valve replacement surgery. She was released to a rehabilitation facility a few days after surgery for two weeks to recover. After that type of major surgery at age 77, she was very weak and she wasn't able to stand and she was on oxygen full time. So the social worker at the hospital advised she would arrange transport for my mom to rehab less than one mile away as she needed to remain lying down and on a stretcher. So a month later, we received a bill from the local ambulance company for $900 for non-emergency transport to the rehab facility. She was charged for oxygen, which was actually supplied by the hospital in a portable tank hooked up prior to her even being transported, among a number of other erroneous charges, band-aids, oxygen tubing, etc. So basically items that she was charged for, this is what uh, Melissa tells us, the art items that she was charged for were actually items that were provided by the hospital. And one of the reasons I wanted to read this particular story is because it touches on a couple of different issues. People who didn't know that they were going to be charged for an ambulance and didn't realize that their ambulance ride was non-emergency. And then we've got folks who, again, a lot of people talked about being billed for all sorts of strange things while they were in the hospital. This reminds me of our maternal care episode where the mother and the child were both charged separately for the room and board <laughs> in the hospital. It's like you get these strange extra bills. And I, I don't know who in Melissa's case, who the, the ambulance company was, but EMS services are becoming increasingly privatized and, you know, particularly they're being kind of handed over to these for-profit corporations that are owned by private equity firms who are particularly bad actors, I think, in the healthcare system, not just in EMS, but in, in other areas as well. So what are the consequences, I think, both for for patients like Melissa, but also EMS workers of this kind of trend in the industry? Yeah, so the privatization of, of ambulance services and sort of emergency ambulance coverage, in theory, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? If you have 10 cities 
and each of the 10 cities tries to come up with their own way of doing ambulances. They've got to create their own protocols, create their own way of doing things, own hiring, firing criteria, and, and what have you. So basically, these companies have sort of created a niche in the market to basically say, I can provide basically a one-size-fits-all solution, a turnkey solution, if you will, to, to the cities. So instead of the city A and city B having city A ambulance service or city B fire department running an ambulance, they would have basically these private companies that contract out ambulance services to these private companies. And in theory, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? But the problem is, is historically, there's been some, some concerns as a result of, of this privatization. So, and we think that some of these concerns, they largely fall under the idea of not enough ambulances to staff a region, slow response times as a result of not having enough ambulances, and then sort of under overworked and underpaid staff. And we really feel like it comes down to this idea of profit incentive. So when you have a, a private company, especially one owned by a private equity firm, they're expecting a profit to come from their service. But when you have a city-run fire department running the ambulance instead, they pretty much have to break even. And even if they don't break even, the city can sort of give them a, a budget to sort of provide ambulance coverage because it's in the city interest to have this. Right. They don't benefit from slashing costs, right? Yeah. Whereas when you have a private ambulance company, you really see this trend to sort of suck money from the system to basically benefit owners and shareholders. If you have a city of 50,000 people that a, an urban planner will do an assessment and say you need three ambulances running 24-7, a private company is probably more likely to try to make do with one or two ambulances. As a result, response times are going to go up. And the individual providers staffing those two ambulances now have to do the work of three ambulances. So they're going to be happy and sort of working more. And in potentially, that could lead to, to patient safety consequences. So there's been instances of EMS providers falling asleep behind the wheel as a result of them being on the road for, and a lot of times they work eight, 12 and 24 hour shifts. So there's been horror stories of people on the road for like 20 plus hours of a 24 hour shift. And when you think of a 24 hour shift, it was designed that you might only be working six or five hours of the 24 hour shift. But when you try to stretch resources across the community, you get really, really unsafe shift schedules. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the spark notes version of why, of where the ambulance industry is right now. And working for these big private equity firms as an EMS provider, are these folks being paid like medical professionals, like nurses or teachers, or are they being paid more like fast food workers? I mean, what's it like for workers in this industry? I mean, both EMS providers, but also the drivers, I imagine. I personally, in sort of full disclosure, I have never worked for sort of a large private ambulance in, in company, but sort of talking to my friends who have sort of worked in that environment, they, they don't really have positive things to say. It's almost a running joke within our industry about working for the privates and it being sort of a soul-sucking endeavor. So it's, it's sort of well-known across the industry that working for these companies is not necessarily the most rewarding aspect of EMS. So a lot of, a lot of people work for these companies and solely to sort of gain experience to apply for fire departments or sort of more reputable, better structured uh, EMS jobs. And so it's, it's really sad to say that when the, the paramedic profession was created, it was really considered to be like the nurse in the streets. But if you look at nursing pay relative to EMS provider pay, there's really huge parity. And even looking at companies that hire nurses to do pre-hospital roles, there's even like a, a disparity between what nurses are making and what paramedics are making, even within the same industry. So I think it's really sad. We got a comment on the article that 
Valve trainees start less than new hires at McDonald's. And it's a running wow. joke in the EMS Facebook groups of people posting photos of like Arby's starting at $21 an hour. And mm -hmm. they're saying, you know, should I, should I hire? Or like, what would a paramedic certification do in an interview when new hires at Arby's are making more than they are as paramedics? So. That's unbelievable. Wow. Dan, Dan. And I imagine this explains a lot of the the negative patient experiences that folks were reporting to us. Some, you know, negative with the MTS themselves, but a lot of them with the billing as well. I imagine if, if you're being treated that poorly as a worker, it's not going to help with morale and, and bedside manner and all that. So, And it also means that workers who are at lower wages are always more vulnerable to pressures from above, from management, right? If you depend on that $15 an hour or that, you know, $12 an hour and you really need it, you're much less likely to speak up and say, I don't know, this billing system looks crazy, or maybe we shouldn't be overcharging people for things. In addition, one of the other problems, I mean, there's so many problems, it's, it's hard to know where to start. But one of the big problems is if you're being paid so little, the tendency is going to be that you're going to work a lot more than many other workers, yeah. the more hours you put in, the more tired you're going to be and probably more cranky. And it would take a lot in those circumstances for someone to provide excellent care. Right. I'm sure it's a difficult job at times. I mean, I know that nurses are of all the professions have to deal with violence much more often with violent patients, much more so even than often police or firefighters. I would just guess that EMS providers also have to face, you know, potential violence um, way more often than others. I don't know if that's been your experience or the, those of your colleagues. Yeah. If you work more than a few months in a busy urban system, you you will have been assaulted probably. Wow. That's, right? it, that's it, wild. It's not, it's not unusual for patients to come out swinging. Not everybody wants to see us. Fortunately, relative to other professions in the public safety world, we tend to be more liked than Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody says fuck the EMS, right? Right. More <laughs> people. I've, I've definitely heard it, but uh, yeah, no, I've been called every name in the book. I've been hit. I've been spit on. I've been wow. kicked. Yeah. That's incredible. And it's, I mean, I feel like, you know, especially since 9 11, there's been this like real public adoration of first responders. I think well-deserved, but it seems like EMS providers are really not given any of the respect that the, the way that they're treated as workers doesn't live up to the, the public standard that we hold up to for, for first responders. So, I mean, it's, it's a running joke that we're sort of the bastard stepchild of the public safety. Right. <laughs> we're unloved by the public safety industry and we're unloved by the medical industry and we exist in sort of this weird ether between the two. Yeah. So. And during COVID, I imagine you all were very exposed, especially early on. So, all right. So I wanted to ask both of you, Wes and Aditya, about the billing part. I mean, we hear a lot about surprise billing in a hospital setting, you know, people who get a surgery and it turns out like one of the, the physicians on the team treating them was out of their network and they end up with this wild surprise bill that they never have possibly seen coming and they couldn't have avoided. But surprise billing, it seems, is is just totally rampant in emergency medical services. And Congress did recently pass this no, the No Surprises Act designed to kind of curb surprise billing, but it has big gaps when it comes to EMS. Can you all talk a little bit about how do surprise bills happen in emergency medical services and how commonplace is it? And, you know, what does or doesn't this bill that Congress passed do to address it? Uh, Wes, do you want to start or? Uh, yeah, I'm mostly going to defer to Aditya, but just to say the obvious, if you are experiencing a medical crisis 
and EMS shows up, you don't have a choice in getting in. I mean, if it's life or death, you're going to go with the EMS provider who, who shows up. And so you're a captive audience at that point, and that exposes you to price billing. So with that, I'll hand it to Aditya. Just to sort of clarify, if you are suffering, say, a heart attack, and you know, I throw on an EKG and I see that you have a heart attack, you can still refuse my care, provided you have capacity. But if, if you're sort of, if you lack capacity or you're having a psychiatric emergency, then in that case, you sort of lose the ability to say no to my care. The billing conversation is really interesting because billing is not necessarily handled by the frontline provider. So when an EMS provider assesses and treats a patient, they complete what's called uh, a patient care report. And this patient care report oftentimes gets bounced to a, a billing person. And now there are sort of billing companies that exist outside of the EMS agencies and a lot of the large, outsourced, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're sort of outsourced to, to private companies themselves. And now some of the large for-profit private ambulance services have their own in-house billing departments. So there really is a, a, a lack of communication between frontline providers and sort of billing. So when it comes to the big thing that we always talk about with, with surprise billing and ambulances is sort of in-network and out-of-network providers. And so when, when a provider is, is sort of in, ethically, I, I have a hard time stomaching in-network and out-of-network for emergency mm -hmm. care. Yeah, that's I call 911 where I'm at, I, I, I can't choose which ambulance really in a lot of 911 situations, right. I can't choose which ambulance is coming. You know, um, I actually, just to interject really quick, we got a lot of stories from folks about people who were called the ambulance, needed the ambulance to transport them to the hospital, but the ambulance was not able to take them to the hospital that they wanted to go to, or like their hospital that was in network, or like even like um, we had one incidence of a veteran, right, who wanted to go to the VA, but to see West, no doubt, but he, you know, they wouldn't take him to the VA hospital. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, and um, are there kind of a arrangements between different ambulance providers and hospitals and that kind of thing? Yeah. So the, the first thing, when, when, when an EMS provider sees a patient, the first sort of determination and the decision is to transport them, the first determination is sort of what is the most medically appropriate facility. So if there is maybe a, an emergency department that might be like a freestanding community ER or maybe not a, a super well-equipped hospital, I might make the decision to take a higher acuity patient farther because that's what they need. So for instance, a trauma victim, if I'm 10 minutes away from a just a, a regular hospital, but I'm 20 minutes away from a level one trauma center, I'm going to bypass the local hospital and take the patient to the level one trauma center because that's the best appropriate facility for their care. Secondly, outside of sort of a patient need question, and the same goes for sort of comprehensive cardiac, comprehensive stroke centers. I'm not going to take a if I go back to the EKG example, I throw an EKG on somebody and it's clear they're having a heart attack, I'm not going to take them to a hospital that isn't a comprehensive cardiac center unless, you know, it's hours away. The next question is sort of more at the system level. In specific areas have different protocols for what patients should go where. So, for instance, if I'm in a rural community and my nearest hospital is 20 minutes away, but the other hospital that the patient wants to go to is three hours away, but I'm the only ambulance for that rural community, it doesn't make sense for me to spend six hours round trip with probably an hour in the middle of a patient turnover, decontamination, charting. For me to spend, you know, right about seven, six and a half hours, seven hours taking an ambulance out of service, potentially the only ambulance in a community, 
out of service to take that patient there. So it makes a lot more sense to go to the closer hospital. So a lot of times decisions as to where to transport are first based on patient need, but second based on sort of local agreements, what makes most sense with system staffing. And there's this old adage, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen exactly one EMS system. So it's really to comment on what happened in those cases. But when patients are being taken to hospitals that aren't the hospital of their choice, it's either because they need resources at a different facility or it's a system status question. Mm -hmm. So there's two surprise bills that can kind of happen. One, the ambulance could be out of network and not be covered by your insurance. But then you could be taken to a hospital that's out of network for you, right? <laughs> and it, it sounds from the perspective of the MS provider, it's totally impossible for you to take into consideration the patient's insurance network. You probably can't even possibly look it up while while caring for a patient. You have to make a, a medically based decision to to get them the, the best help uh, the fastest. But that could leave them with a big bill at the end. So it, it's just a it's totally crazy for them. One of the things that sort of like came up here is just that more and more people are deciding not to use ambulances, right? Mm. We were, when Ben and I were talking about this topic for this thing, I was like, oh yeah, I'll never use an ambulance again. I paid, got an 800 bill. I'll, I will literally bleed in an Uber and, <laughs> you know, if, to get to the hospital rather than doing a, rather than doing an ambulance. We got one story from one of our wonderful Healthcare Now activists, Bonnie Gorman, who's a nurse. And she basically says that at the Y where she goes to, she She's doing what Wes did. And, um, you know, if people pass out or something like that, she drives them to the mm. hospital. She's just there to work out, which is right. so, I mean, right now what we're doing is like, you know, a lot of people are making Lyft or Uber or whatever random person they can find to drive them, right? Mm. They're making that their EMS service. What mm. do you think are the dangers of that for our healthcare system? Well, I mean, Quite obviously, it's going to delay care. I mean, if I'm having a heart, whether I'm home or at work, if I'm having a heart attack, I want a teacher or someone like that yeah. near me, working on me as quickly as possible. And if I'm delaying care because I'm getting myself to whatever facility I was trying to, you know, hoping to go to, presumably all costs are in the end are going to be even greater because I'm more acute and sicker by the time I get where I need to go. Wow. Yeah. We've been kind of tacitly mostly talking about ground transportation, emergency tra ambulances. But Adi, I did want to ask you because for all the horror stories Wes just gave of $2,000 ambulance bills, tell us a little bit about air ambulances if you have to be taken in a helicopter or somewhere. Because those bills, I imagine, could really could be something else altogether on a whole different scale, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So let's sort of revisit this example of that rural patient who the closest hospital is 20 minutes, but the nearest comprehensive stroke center is, is three hours away. And we can't necessarily go by ground and it's clear they're, they're having a stroke. In that case, a, a helicopter would likely be dispatched to, to respond to this community hospital and then transfer the patient to the comprehensive stroke center, usually in, in a major metropolitan area. And interestingly, if the number of ground ambulances has gone down, the number of air ambulances has proliferated. We've sort of seen mm. the opposite trend happen. And there's really been, air ambulance billing has really been sort of the wild, wild west. Companies have relatively little restrictions and relatively wide latitude to charge what, whatever they want to charge. Wow. Uh -huh. Almost consider it like post-airline deregulation. These are basically airline passenger, unscheduled airline passenger flights with one passenger. 
So these companies can charge pretty much whatever they want to charge. And they've realized, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. So the number of air ambulances has ballooned. And what that means is the air ambulances are not as busy as they used to. So one of my one of my best friends and closest colleagues, his name is Dr. Ira Bloom, and he's at the University of Chicago. And he sort of has this analysis that showed that if you decrease the number of air ambulances, you would decrease the average bill from you know tens of thousands of dollars to only a few thousand dollars. Because now you go from a situation where you have five, $10 million helicopter that's just sitting in an airport 24 seven with a pilot making a heck of a lot of money with a medical crew making a heck of a lot of money. And they're just sitting there doing nothing. But basically if you decrease the number, you're gonna have more flights. And so when you have more flights, the, the time that the helicopter is spent idle is, is less of a factor. The other thing that's interesting is there's a sort of free rider problem with, with air ambulances and ground ambulances to the same extent, and also just general emergency care because of sort of laws, and I think it's rightfully so, I have to provide care regardless of your ability to pay. And I think that's that's amazing. But the problem is, is that when these companies approach patient transactions with the idea that a certain percentage of patients are not going to be able to pay, when they find patients who are able to pay, they they sort of- Crank up the fees, yeah. <laughs> and Wes has decades of experience sort of interrogating private equity's role in healthcare. And I'd love to hear sort of his thoughts on that and- Oh, when, when private equity is involved, they're going to do everything they can to maximize profit and skimp on service. As far back as the 90s, when I first got into medicine, one of the for-profit private equity firms actually owned a managed mental health care company. And at the same time, that firm also owned RJ Reynolds Tobacco. <laughs> and, I thought, and I literally thought, how ironic that a company would invest in an insurance company, uh, a company like Colbert Kravis Roberts, the private equity firm I'm referring to, at that point owned managemental healthcare company and also owned the single entity, which is the biggest killer in our midst. And, and for me, the, the ownership really exposes the fact that it's all about money. It is not about health. It is not about providing healthcare, making people healthy. It's just what are we going to do that makes the most money? Yeah, and to put to put a number on these air ambulance fees, I mean, you can end up with a bill like twenty thousand dollars, right? Easy. I've seen fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Wow, that's just wild. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we've all seen the cost of air travel rise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Turns out when the, there's a an EKG involved, it's even more expensive. I wanted to briefly touch on before we move on to the to your article or sort of close out with your article. Maybe Aditya, you can talk a little bit about this No Surprises Act that Congress actually passed, which is designed to address some of these surprise billing stories that that we've all been hearing, but mostly in the hospital setting. So it it sounds like a lot of loopholes were created to leave out emergency medical services. Is that correct? Yeah, so with no surprises, which I believe was passed Q4 2021, if I want to, if I'm right in saying, that act was sort of the idea is to sort of minimize out of network surprise billing. But ground ambulances, interestingly, were were excluded from that and sort of area. Very interesting. So that's sort of weird, almost like Tetris, where you know air ambulances, which potentially might be sort of more culpable with the surprise billing, considering the magnitude mm -hmm. of billing. But you have ground ambulances, which are, you know, there's only a few thousand air ambulances, uh, if that, in the country. But, you know, there are 
you know, vastly more ground ambulances treating vastly more patients. So there's really a question of where to align political capital and sort of which, which do you tackle? So it sounds like they've tackled air ambulances with the No Surprises Act. The implementation process, if it did indeed pass, which I think it did, implementation process is happening right now. And then we're sort of waiting and seeing to see what that will do to air ambulance industry. But then also with the ground ambulance industry, we're sort of left in limbo where there has been talk about committees being formed and sort of advisory boards just try to create a similar a similar mechanism to the No Surprises Act for ground ambulances. So that's sort of where we're at right now. And I think it really potentially comes down to the fact that I can't easily judge medical necessity in the back of an ambulance or even in the back of an air ambulance for that matter. So when medical necessity is really the the crux of whether or not insurance pays for a bill and I don't have the resources or the mechanisms to really say, is it just you having the worst headache of your life, sleep it off and here's a Motrin or, you know, there's a bleed on your brain and I really need, I, I don't have a CT scanner for the head and I got to take you into the hospital. But if it turns out that the billing company and the insurance company decides that this wasn't medically necessary, it leaves the patient in an unfortunate situation. Yeah. I've had that happen to me at a hospital where I was admitted to a hospital and my insurance company after the fact decided it wasn't necessary to be admitted. And then I said, Oh, here you go. $4,000 bill. You can pay for this yourself. Yikes. Yep. And, and now there's sort of, it puts us in an awkward spot because now yeah. we're getting, we're getting messaging that we now have to sort of try to frame our patient care reports and frame what we do in a way to sort of portray medical necessity, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Wow. Good times. Good times. So all this stuff is obviously horrifying. And you wrote this really great article in Slate. Again, everyone should check that out. It was a great way to kind of get into this discussion by uh, using the hook of the Michael Bay movie. But do you want to just tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of the reactions that you've gotten to that article so far? Yeah, I know, um, Wes, you got some some pretty great emails about that, and then I can sort of touch on some of the stuff that we've got. No, 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 a number of people were really happy that we touched on the subject and brought it to light, because really this is something that, that a lot of people don't know much about. And in fact, before Aditya came to me and we started talking, that's when I, that was my education in this whole process. But no, we received an email essentially asking us to be part of a coalition of EMS providers, both nationally and internationally, to come up with suggestions and solutions for how to right this ship that is so far off course. That's great. That's great. And sort of no pun intended, I've been keeping my, my fingers on the pulse of the, the social media chatter with the article and some of the comments that I've gotten on social media I think a lot of people are really excited in sort of the EMS world. I've had a lot of colleagues and a lot of people be really sort of thankful that we that we brought this to light. I'm really grateful to the editors at Slate for, for giving us this platform and incredibly grateful to Wes for all his help. I think my favorite comment on the on the article was total clickbait. I wanted to see if Jake Gyllenhaal would show his junk. Instead, I got a well-reasoned critique of the ambulance industry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know which one is better, though. Uh, both are very satisfying. But I, mean, I do want to provide a spoiler, which is that Jim yeah. Gyllenhaal does not show his junk. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, and I can also add a disclaimer. In, in my experience, I have never been kidnapped by Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not 
couldn't happen in the future. But I mean, some of the other things that we've gotten have been comments from people who've worked in, in private ambulances, and they're really frustrated that the situation right now. So somebody said, I guess this is where our yearly raise went uh, to the movie. And I'm not, I'm not privy to sort of what the transactions were, so I'm only sort of speculating that, that they, as well as I am, sort of speculating that money changed hands. But oh, of course, that yeah. was also really interesting. And then a lot of people feel that they're underappreciated when they go through all this training and subject themselves to a degree of stress and a degree of danger that that you know should be rewarded, but they end up making less than an entry level hire at a, at a fast food restaurant in certain areas. So yeah, I do. I wanted to ask you one last question yeah. before we close this out. If we had a Medicare for all system where there was just emergency medical services were just covered as a public good, how would that change your life as a, an EMS provider? Yeah, so it's really tough for me to prognosticate just from sort of the, the flip of switch what would happen, because I think a lot of things need to be taken care of in order for things to get better. Number one, I think working conditions for EMS providers has to get better. That's probably going to start with better pay. And I think there's probably going to have to be a, a real scrutiny in terms of what sort of frontline accountability and frontline empowerment is given to EMS providers. I also think that perhaps national education surrounding when to call, when to use ambulance services is, is worthwhile because one of the fears of just sort of carte blanche coverage for ambulance is that suddenly people are just going to start using them gratuitously and that's only going to compound to overstretched resources. So I really think there needs to be education on on when is appropriate to to use ambulance services and when might an alternative means of transportation or something to follow up with your your local primary care provider. So I think the future of EMS would involve what's called sort of mobile integrated health, which is the treatment of chronic. So basically the, the genesis of mobile integrated health was a lot of EMS resource use comes from caring for patients with poorly managed chronic conditions. So maybe termed frequent flyers almost in the industry. And so poorly managed chronic conditions that don't necessarily require transport to the hospital. So utilizing the training and skills of EMS providers to work in consultation with physicians staffed remotely. And I think new technology of telemedicine will unlock this. Basically, I show up to your home maybe once a week and I perform in effect a doctor's visit with a doctor who is sitting in a hospital and he's sort of managing me and sort of 20 of my colleagues who are all seeing patients who've been identified as potential at high risk of overusing EMF resources. So I think that's probably what the future of EMS looks like. Mm-hmm. We'll treat them in home. Yeah. And Wes, I assume with a Medicare for all system, that's the, those stories you told us about your patients would be completely transformed that you would not have patients who beg you not to call an ambulance even when they need it. Right? I yeah. Mean, and and I've been practicing medicine now for roughly 30 years, and any time there is a profit motive involved in the kind of care that I deliver, including the kind of care that I'm sending patients to receive, uh, the care is worse. And the outcomes suffer as a result of the profit motive. Well, I want to thank so much of you, thank both of you so much for joining us and for writing this article in such a timely manner. And this is a, a part of the healthcare industry I didn't know that much about, so I've really gained an education here, and I want to keep learning more. Actually, so thank you so much. I also want to close by thanking our podcast team, without yes. whom we could not do this or any of our episodes. Our podcast manager is Angelique Davis. Our researcher for this episode was Lindsay Beish, and our show notes writer was Jerry Katz. 
And last but not least, our audio editor was Arena Budanova. So thanks so much to the team, and thanks to you all. We'll see you next time. Thanks Bye. so much. Thank you so much again. Stay safe and stay dangerous. <laughs>